0: Good morning. It's good to see you all. I'm going to be preaching today from James chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there with me. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 5. The, toward the very end of the book. As James is wrapping up his epistle... Going to read through the verses 13 through 18 and then I'll pray and then we'll begin uh, walking through them verse by verse as we typically do here. James 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Father God, thank you for your word. As we, as we study it this morning, I pray you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, uh, bring us wisdom and understanding of what you intend to say to us in your word. And in all these things, we, we thank you and praise you for your holy word in Jesus' name. Amen. This section toward the end of the Epistle to James is uh, specifically on the subject of prayer. Uh, and when you read it, I think that becomes fairly obvious. In fact, we're going to see four prayers in this section, and those are what uh, makes up my sermon headings in my notes, if that helps you at all, if you're taking notes. Um, We're going to see first the individual's prayer, second the elder's prayer, third the prayer for one another, and fourth the prayer of the righteous person. So starting right in, in verse 13, is the individual prayer, the individual's prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Anyone, uh, if you look that up in the Greek, Greek, it means anybody, every one of you qualify for this one. Anyone if is anyone suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. So we have uh, two categories here, suffering and cheerful, and those two categories uh, cover every state you might be in. Either cheerful or suffering. That word for suffering is really a broad term, it encompasses everything from suffering persecution, to sickness, to uh, ill health, to uh, depression, anything that isn't defined as being cheerful. That would fall into that category. So what is this saying? At all points in our life, no matter what we're going through, no matter how we're feeling, we should be taking it to the Lord. We should be in prayer, and we should be in worship, singing praise like the song we just sang. Uh, The Lord gives us breath, fills our lungs with his breath, Breath, let us worship him. Of course, I can't remember the words of the song right now. But, you know, we just sang it. It's good stuff. <clears throat> Paul puts it this way in First Thessalonians five 17. You've heard these verses, I'm sure. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is God's will for us to be continually in prayer and in praise and giving thanks in all situations. Uh, this single point, if we could just get a hold of and go home and practice this, that would be that would be enough, that'd be awesome. So let's close in prayer. No, I'm, I'm kidding, we have several more verses to go. <clears throat> but really, we, we should get a hold of this truth, prayer and praise throughout our life. Verse 14 brings us immediately to the second prayer in this series, and that is the elder's prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now this, this word sick is not like the previous word for suffering. It's not quite a wide range uh, variety. It uh, specifically means <clears throat> one who is made weak. One who is made weak. And, and the implication here is uh, someone who is uh, probably so ill that they, they they can't get up and go to work. They can't come to the church. This is why they're Calling for the elders to come to them. They can't probably travel. Uh, So they call for the elders. That's what they're supposed to do. If you can imagine what that looked like in the first century to call for the elders, Uh, it meant you had to find somebody to actually go to the elders, plural. This is more than one elder. Go to multiple places, probably, and find these elders, coordinate a time for them to all meet back at your house to pray for you. It's very difficult. We have no excuses today because when we want to call the elders, we just look in our left hand, ah, there's a phone, right? It's very simple to obey this instruction when you're ill, when you're uh, weak. Uh, let the elders know what's happening. Uh, they're the ones who love you and care for you, want to help you, or are pleased to come pray for you. Uh, notice, though, that the, the responsibility is on, on the person who is ill, it does not say uh just stop going to church, they'll notice sooner or later then that's not what it says uh and if you've never heard of people taking that strategy, they're all over the place and and that's a that's a wrong strategy to take. See if I miss that church. let's see how long before someone notices I'm gone, whether you're sick or not sick that that's childish games. Uh, that's that's violating what Hebrews thirteen seventeen tells you. Let the elders do their responsibility with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So I encourage you, communicate with your elders, especially when you're in need. Uh, we, we live in a in a day and age where we uh, we often don't want to reach out when we're in need. Uh, we're too prideful to say, "Hey, I need some help." Uh, if you're if you're in need of help, call your elders. It's it's very simple. Call them. Ask them to come and help. Call others in the church if it's not this specific case where you're uh, incapacitated and you need elders to pray for you. Communicate with those around you who are part of the body of Christ and let them know so they can help you. But in this situation, the sick person is to call the elders of the church. The elders are those who are, as we uh, prayed for a new elder this morning, you, you saw, the uh, Elders are the ones, according to 1 Peter 5, who are the shepherds of God's flock that is under their care, and they are to be examples to the flock. So the elders are to go as examples of those who are uh, men of prayer and who can adequately care for the needs spiritually of uh, the members of the flock. And they will pray for the sick person. notice also that these elders are elders of the church this is not just talking about the universal church this is talking about your local church it is assumed by james that the christians he's writing to are all members of a local church that they belong to a specific local church they're not hopping around from church to church if 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 you're doing that who are you going to call what elders will you call Will they know who you are? No, you are to be part of a local church, and you are to call for your own elders to come and pray for you when you're sick. Notice the Bible does not does also does not say you're to travel across country and find the healer guy that's famous for healing people. No, that's that's not the way you're supposed to do it. I was always amazed when I lived in in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was part of. Uh, the Word of Faith movement down there who has a lot of mixed up ideas about these kinds of things specifically. And it was always fun when you go to church, uh, huge, huge church, 5,000 people, but you could drive through the parking lot and the, and the goal was to see as many license plates as you could from other states because people would flock there from all over the US to try and get healed. That's not what God's Word tells us to do. It says, call your elders the ones that are right there caring for you, and let them come to you. Let them pray over you, it says, anointing, let them pray over him, the sick person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Pray over him. You can see the the picture in James' mind, this person's probably on a bed or something. The elders are literally over them, praying on them praying for them. This person has been brought low by their illness. Anoint him with oil. What does this mean? Anoint him with oil. What's the oil? What does it symbolize? Is it a symbolized thing or is it a medicine that's supposed to heal? Um, I probably looked at 15 different commentaries and found 15 different answers to these questions. This seems to be one of those things that no one can agree on. And so I was really kind of stressing about it and I ended up, I texted the other elders in the group and I was like, hey, this is something we really haven't talked much about. Well, what are we thinking about the oil here? It tells us anoint with oil. What, what does this mean? What is it? What is and uh, my brother Luke chimed in and, and helped me out very much. He said, well, just be careful not to say anything the Bible doesn't say. I said, oh, well, the Bible doesn't say anything else. So, I shouldn't say anything else either. And so we'll move on. Uh, This is the only place in the Bible that talks about uh, the elders specifically anointing with oil. If we needed more detail, we'd be given more detail. Uh, For instance, if you look at the Old Testament passages uh, where uh, God commanded the anointing of a new priest with oil, We have pages of, this is how you make the oil. This is how much you put in the oil. This is what you do with the oil. And then you pour some on your hand and then you sprinkle seven times and then you touch the earlobe and then you touch the thumb and then you touch the toe. And it's like, okay, very specific. So if God wanted us to be very specific and have a lot more information, he would give it to us. But the point is, in the next verse, verse 15, it is the prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick. It's not the magic oil, because oil is not magic, it is the prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. What is the prayer of faith? The prayer of faith is a prayer that is given in faith. Faith is simply believing and trusting God and His Word. And this is the prayer that will raise him up. This shouldn't be uh, hard to understand for us. We, we can make this very difficult, but it's very simple. Every one of us has prayed a prayer of faith. If you're a believer, you prayed a prayer of faith to receive salvation. And in fact, look at what this verse goes on to say. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is salvation language. This is this is salvation language that could be interpreted as healing language, but it's salvation language. In other words, I think I think James used these specific words intentionally to tell us, "Hey, remember what your hope is. Your hope's not in the immediate; it's in the eternal." Many people are really uh, have a have a problem with. This verse, because James gives such a a declaration of this is what will happen. And yet we see in the Bible, some people don't get healed. And we see that in real life. Some people don't get healed, no matter how much faith we have. And when we pray for them, we're praying earnestly, and they don't all get healed. But I want you to see carefully what James is saying. In this whole sentence, in this whole verse, he he does not give a timetable. In fact, that's consistent throughout the whole Bible in all the promises. When God promises to heal his people, which he does, he does not give a timetable. And that's where most people uh, mistake, make mistakes doctrinally on these type of verses. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. This is an absolute promise and an absolute guarantee for every believer. To be saved, we know what this means. It means our soul will be saved. It could also mean that we would be healed, but not always. To be raised up could mean raised up off your sick med. It could mean raised up on the final day when Christ returns in glory. And this is exactly, I think, what, what James is saying here. All of us as Christians, as believers, have our sins forgiven, will be saved and raised up. And by the grace of God, many times God does this in our lifespan. He raises us up from our sickbed. He heals us. I think sometimes as Christians, we have this viewpoint that God very seldom heals people. I, th- I think the opposite is true. God God heals people all the time. But the problem is we're always looking for something very miraculous. For instance, I can't count for you how many times in my life I've been sick. And every time I've been sick, somebody's been praying for me, my parents or my wife, even my kids. And you know what? Every single time I've been healed. How can I say that? Because I'm standing here and I'm healthy, right? God has not allowed any of those sicknesses to take my life, even COVID. Praise God. And God, by his mercy, didn't allow anyone in our church to die from COVID. We should be going back to verse 13 and giving him praise and thanks for those things. And too often, I think, we forget to praise God and thank him for his mercy in raising us up because we just think, oh, God didn't do anything. I just just got better on my own. Really? You can't even draw breath on your own. amen, that's the truth. Um, If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I want you to notice in that part of the verse, that really big word at the beginning, if. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What James is bringing to our attention here is uh, the connection between sin and sickness, connection between sin and sickness. There are two errors that many people believe in regard to sin and sickness and their con- connection. The first one is all sickness is caused by sin. If you're sick, you've sinned and you need to repent. This was the position taken by Job's friends in the Bible to which Job said, "No, I am innocent." And if you read the dialogue, they just keep coming back to you, no, because no, because you're sick, we know you have sinned. And this is false. And God ends up coming in and exonerating Job and saying, no, he's not sick because he sinned. Nope, that's not how it works all the time. John chapter 9 is another example where Jesus himself, he heals a man born blind. But before he does so, the disciples ask him, do you remember, Was this man born blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And Jesus says, neither, but that the glory of God may be revealed. So his sickness was not caused by sin. The other wrong uh, extreme we might go to, and this is much more common in our day, is that no sickness is caused by sin. This is what most people probably believe today, because we have science. We know that sickness is caused by germs and stuff and viruses and whatever all that stuff is, right? Rogue cells in your body. We have science. Sickness is caused by things around us, not by things inside of us. The Bible refutes this as well. In John chapter five, Jesus heals a lame man. And after he heals the lame man, he says to him, Stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus believed you could get sick because you sinned. David, in Psalm 34, 32, 32. Uh, he says, sorry, I didn't put it in my notes for some reason. He says that while I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, my bones wasted away. His physical body was being destroyed because of his own sin. 1 Corinthians 11.30, talking about the Lord's Supper, Paul says to those who are abusing and misusing the Lord's Supper, he says, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. That's pretty brutal. Don't think that sin doesn't have an effect on your physical life. It definitely can. But James says, if. So he's saying, not all sickness is a result of sin, but it may be. It may be. When we are sick, it should cause us to pause because sickness does cause us to pause, right? We're just laying around anyway. We might as well stop and think about, Lord, have I sinned? Or is there something in my life that I need to repent of? Is there unconfessed sin? that I've done against you or against a brother or sister in Christ. <coughs> verse 16 brings us to the prayer for one another, the third prayer. Excuse me. <coughs> We're saying about these microphones. You can't turn your head away. It's just there. Uh, coffee helps. Uh, verse 16, the prayer for one another. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And if you've been around me very long at all, you know when I see the therefore, I ask, what is it therefore? That's a helpful reminder to me to stop and think. This verse doesn't stand alone. It is tied to what comes before When we read this verse out of context by itself, we come up with all kinds of strange ideas that we should do in the church, like have accountability groups and confess our sins to one another. Unbiblical idea. What is it saying? Well, in the context, this is the sick person who needs healing. Look at the end of the verse, six. Not the end of the verse, the end of the first sentence in the verse. That you may be healed. Obviously, this guy needs some healing. And it's this person who is to confess his sins to one another. And the one another's are to pray for each other. Why? It's because it follows James' train of thought. This person is sick, and he may be sick because he has sinned. And if he discovers, hey, I've sinned against my brother, guess what? Go confess your sin to him that you may be healed. Confess your, confess your sin and then pray for each other. This is the context of this verse, confess your sins to one another. Nowhere else in the Bible are we ever told to confess our sins to one another. Did you know that? Not just as a random general thing, like I should confess any sin that comes to mind to my brother. It would not be helpful if I walk up to you in church and say, hey brother, I just gotta confess to you uh, every time I see your face, I get really disgusted, and I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm working on it. Like, that's not that's not helpful. And we can think of other thoughts that we might have about other people around us that would not be helpful to confess to them. So there's principles about confessing sin in the Bible, throughout the Bible. And I, I want to summarize these very uh, quickly for you, I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on this, um, but I'm... Uh, I've I've got these summary points from uh, a book by John Stott that I highly recommend called Confess Your Sins. And he goes through all the scriptures. He talks about um, what the Bible says in regard to confessing your sin. And the the three points I want to make are this. Uh, Secret sins should be confessed secretly. In other words, uh, if I've sinned secretly in my thought, in my heart, it's not a sin that somebody else has has been affected by or seen, I need to confess that sin secretly to God. I need to take it to him. He's the one who has the power to forgive me because I've sinned against him and him alone. Secondly, public sins must be confessed publicly. This this is all very logical and is what the Bible teaches. If I sin against my small group by uh, slandering someone in my small group, I did it in front of all of them. I need to, it's not enough for me to call that one person up the next day and, and repent to him. I need to repent to my whole small group, right? If if I speak unkindly to my wife in front of my children, it's not enough for me to apologize to my wife. I need to apologize to my children or to my wife in front of my children. That's what, The however public your sin is, that is how public it needs to be uh, confessed. Thirdly, private sins, and this is the, the area that I think James is falling under right here, private sins should be confessed privately. In other words, if I've sinned against John, I need to go to John and confess privately my sin to him. It's very straightforward and simple. And, and I always, when I walk through this, I always get a little pushback uh, uh, from guys Generally, who say, "Well, well, I need this. I need to confess my sins to this uh, group of men who who will hold me accountable for my sin if I don't confess to them. Who's going to keep me from continuing this?" And I and I I want to ask the person two things. Number one, how is that working for you? Because generally, the answer to that is not at all. And and number two is why do you have such a high view of man and such a low view of God? It is. God, who you are accountable to. Why do you think that not confessing sins that you've committed to God, not confessing them to your brother is somehow getting away with them? You're not. God sees them. And you need to fall humbly on your face before God and repent and confess to God your sins. And then you need to plead for the power of his Holy Spirit to bear fruit in your life and bear keeping with repentance. I'm not saying there isn't a good and godly and appropriate time to ask a brother or sister, hey, would you you pray for me? I'm struggling in this area. I'm struggling with this sin. Would you pray for me? But you know what? That's not confessing sin. That's asking for prayer. That's a big difference. When you confess sin, you're asking someone to forgive you. And confessing sin to people you haven't sinned against, they don't have the power to forgive you. It makes no sense. So if I spent too long on that, I apologize. But this verse is speaking about uh, a a brother who is in need of forgiveness from another brother going to that person and asking forgiveness um, and then praying for one another. The ultimate goal, again, is pray for one another so that there may be healing and restoration. Leads us to praying. Fourth prayer in this section Begins in verse at the end of that same verse. That's 16, right? Yes. At the end of the same verse, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That sounds phenomenal. Who doesn't want great power in their prayers? I do. So the first question we must ask ourselves, of course, is who's the righteous person? Who's the righteous person who has this great power in his prayers? Our answer to who is the righteous person, uh, first thing that comes to my mind is Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And this speaks of our righteousness in our own selves. But the writer, Paul, goes on to say it a couple of verses later, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So all who believe in Christ are made righteous by Christ. Does this mean that James is saying every believer's prayers are powerful and effective? I don't think so. I don't think so. What Paul is saying is uh, he's using a second uh, kind of righteousness. And this is typical throughout the Bible. Uh, Righteousness can be used to describe a couple of different things. The first one, uh, as uh, Martin Luther put it, is alien righteousness. That's not righteousness you get from an alien. not has nothing to do with aliens. Alien is not from me, right, outside of me. The first one is the one that was talked about in Romans, alien righteousness, that Christ gives you his righteousness through faith in him. It is imputed to you. But the second kind of righteousness he calls proper righteousness, and this is the righteousness that comes as a fruit of Christ's righteousness in you. It produces a proper or real righteousness. Righteousness that can be observed by other people. This is the Spirit of God bearing fruit in your life. This is you uh, beginning to, uh, continuing to repent of sins and walk rightly before God. First John 1, uh, the writer John puts it this way, talking to believers, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So believers who have sinned need to be cleansed from unrighteousness. That comes by confessing our sins. Likewise, in 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about uh, a similar thing in regards to prayers. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So you can be a Christian, having the righteousness of Christ, and your prayers can be hindered. Why? Because of sin and unrighteousness. So the righteous person that James is speaking of, I believe, is the person, in the context, it just seems very obvious, it's the person who has confessed their sins and are now made righteous. We want to do that because then our prayers are powerful and effective. That's why we confess our sins to God and to one another and why we walk righteously and walk in the light. This person is a man or woman whose prayers are powerful as they are working. James goes on to give us the example of a righteous man with powerful and effective prayers. And that man is Elijah he chooses. Elijah, verse 17, was a man with a nature like ours. A man with a nature like ours. He could have introduced Elijah in many ways, right? Right? the most amazing, powerful, miracle-working prophet of the Old Testament, or something to that effect. No, but he says he, he's a man like you and me. He, he wants us to realize he, this is a man. This is a, just like you. What, what he's hinting at is the potential for powerful prayer that Elijah had, you have, because you're a man just like him. It's encouraging. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, I don't, I don't want to take a whole bunch of time. I, I do want to, but I'm not going to, uh, to read through chapters 17 and 18 of 1 Kings, where this story takes place. But I am going to uh, recap and summarize for you, uh, because this will give us some more insight into... Elijah, and why he is called a powerful man of prayer by James. James is writing to people who he expects knows this story. And so he just mentions the story very briefly and expects us to know what he's talking about and why Elijah is a man of powerful prayer and how we might imitate him. 1 Kings 17 and 18 Uh, the beginning of chapter 17 is where Elijah first walks on the scene. We've never seen him, never heard of him. Uh, We have this wicked King Ahab and his wife Jezebel who are uh, reigning in Israel. And they are leading the people to serve false gods of Baal and Ashtoreth. And so Elijah just walks up to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain anymore unless I say so turns around and walks away. Now, I don't know what you would do if somebody came and said that to you. Uh, I would laugh, probably. I'm assuming that's what Ahab did, uh, which is why Elijah was able to walk away. Uh, But after a while, when it didn't rain anymore, uh, Ahab was very upset and sent everyone possible to go find this Elijah guy. Uh, And so immediately when Elijah left, God told him, go hide. Go out to this brook in the middle of nowhere, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, and I'm going to feed you by sending ravens with food. Boy, what a delight. Can you imagine that dinner every night and every morning for years? And Elijah sat there as a righteous man and did nothing. He waited on God. He did not pray for him. He could sure use some rain for himself. But he did not. He waited on God. and we, What we find out in the story, as as Elijah prays later on, he says something in his prayer that's key. He says, I, I have only done what God has commanded me. And so we know that all his prayers and all the things he's doing is directly a command from God. But where the story gets really intense and exciting is the part that James is referring to here, at the end of the drought, God speaks to Elijah again In the beginning of the 18th chapter. He says, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. And so Elijah went and showed himself to Ahab. What's Elijah doing? It's, it's really hard to grasp. He's being obedient. He's just obeying God and doing what God says. This is what makes him a righteous man. So he goes and shows himself to Ahab and he throws down a challenge. He says, you bring your 450 priests of Baal out to Mount Carmel. We'll meet there. We'll each make sacrifices. And whoever's God answers by fire is the real God. And for whatever reason, they're like, deal. This'll be awesome. We're gonna put you down, Elijah. One against 450. And you, you, most of you know the story. Elijah allows them all to sit there from morning till night, these 450 prophets of Baal, and they're cutting themselves and they're jumping up and down and they're doing all the things, trying to get their God to answer them. And he just stands there and mocks them all day, right? Where's your God? Did he did he take off and go to the bathroom? Is that is that the problem? It's a great story, you gotta read it. At the end of the day, when it's time for, the Hebrew sacrifice, in the evening, Elijah puts out his sacrifice, he prays, and this is where his prayer is, oh God, let the people see that I'm only doing what you have told me to do, and turn their hearts back to you. That's his prayer. Doesn't, he doesn't even pray for fire. doesn't even mention it. And fire comes down from heaven, takes the sacrifice, and he says to King Ahab, well, First, of course, all the people are like, the Lord, he is God. They start saying, the Lord, he is God. And God has converted the hearts of the people. And so naturally, they take the 450 priests and slaughter them. I think that's natural reaction in that case, right? That's what you should do. And, uh, not today. This this is appropriate in their situation. Um, God turns the hearts of the people back to him. And what does Elijah do now? Elijah has God's word. He's heard God's word, show yourself to Elijah, do these things, and I will send rain. And this is where most Christians miss it. Elijah goes up onto the mountain by himself and starts to pray. This reminds me of Jesus' words about prayer when he says, When you pray, don't stand out there on the street corner like the Pharisees and expect everybody to hear your great, long, beautiful prayers. But go in the closet and shut the door. That what you say in private may be heard in heaven. Elijah is practicing this command long before Jesus ever said it. He goes up on the mountain and he throws himself on the ground and he begins to pray that God would do what God has already promised he was going to do. We see this time and time again in the, New New Te- the Old Testament. Daniel did the same thing. But Elijah is up there and he's praying. So he prays God's promise back to God. That's what he prays. This is part of why his prayers are so effective and powerful. He didn't make up that he wanted to stop the rain or to make it rain again. He's praying what God has already told him he is going to do. And Elijah prays back to God what God had promised. And then Elijah keeps on praying back to God what God had promised until he sees it happen. He sends his servant seven times to go and to look at the top of Mount Carmel. Do you see any rain clouds yet? Six times he comes back, I see nothing. And we know now uh, if you go to stand on top of Mount Carmel, you can see for 100 miles in every direction. Like, he's, he's scouting it out. He's looking out there. Seventh time, Elijah's still praying to God, send rain. And the, and the servant comes back and says, there's a cloud forming off in the distance, about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, time to go. God sending in the rain. This is how a righteous man prays. He prays fervently, he prays privately, and he prays for what God has already promised. My friends, those are powerful prayers. And I think sometimes, because we misunderstand God's sovereignty, we don't pray like we should. We think, if God has promised to do something, why should I pray about it? But in God's sovereign plan, he has declared that your prayers are powerful and effective, and they are a crucial part of the plan. And so, we should be faithful in prayer, faithful in prayer, and excited to be a part of what God is doing because through our prayers, God does what He has already promised He will do. We need powerful people of prayer. Our church needs people of prayer who will pray for this church we need uh, people who will pray for our city for our state for our nation our nation needs our prayers I want to encourage you to become this person a righteous person whose prayers are powerful and effective I want to encourage you to become people who are uh, repentant of their sins and who pray for one another and fellowship with one another well, and then pray, take, take your requests to God in prayer. Uh, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, in your encouragement to us uh, to confess our sins to one another, uh, to be healed, to, to ask for prayer, uh, to bring everything to you, in prayer and in praise. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up in this church men and women who are powerful in prayer. I thank you, Lord, for those who already are. I know there are many who are already powerful prayers. prayers. And Lord, I ask for more. I ask that you would remind all of us and help us to strive uh, to be men and women of prayer. And Lord, would you... Continue to bless us as we are encouraged in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.